0: Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, President Biden visits New York and New Jersey to survey damage from Hurricane Ida. Women take to the streets again in Afghanistan. And New York City teachers worry about the city's lax school reopening plans. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, President Joe Biden visited parts of New York and New Jersey earlier today that were hard hit last week by the remnants of hurricane ida the deluge of rain left more than 40 people dead in the greater nyc metropolitan region biden said it was time to face the challenges posed by a hotter climate
1: for decades uh, scientists have warned of extreme weather uh, would be more extreme and climate change was here and we're living through it now we don't have any more time i mean every part of the country Every part of the country is getting hit by extreme weather. And uh, we're now living in real time what the country's going to look like. And if we don't do something, we can't turn it back. In other weather
0: news, Hurricane Larry has become a Category 3 storm with top sustained winds of 120 miles per hour. Forecasters expect it to head out to the North Atlantic without coming ashore. However... Hurricane Larry is expected to produce dangerous riptides along the Atlantic seaboard, including in the New York area. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has begun to fill out the top posts in its government. On Tuesday, appointments were announced for the heads of the Council of Ministers, the Defense Ministry, and the Interior Ministry, all going to longtime leaders of the Islamic fundamentalist movement. Meanwhile, women and men in Kabul protested for the second time in a week. They denounced the Taliban's ties to Pakistan before being beaten and dispersed by police. Reports from Kabul say the Taliban have arrested 14 journalists and photographers from Tolo News, Reuters, and Kabul News TV, Nor TV, and Khaled Group while covering today's protest in Kabul. In Buffalo, New York, Democratic mayoral nominee India Walton filed an appeal earlier today to overturn a federal judge's ruling that would allow four-term incumbent Mayor Byron Brown to run on his own ballot line in November's general election. Walton, a Democratic Socialist, defeated Brown in the Democratic primary in June. The deadline for filing to run on an independent ballot line expired three months ago. Nonetheless, the judge, a Trump appointee, ruled that Brown could run as a member of the Buffalo Party and not as a write-in candidate. This is Walton speaking. We are going to appeal and for a small grassroots campaign, resources are always an issue. This effort to circumvent democracy is a concerted effort to drain our very limited resources. So I would just ask for supporters to keep that in mind and make sure that they continue to support our campaign. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has signed a package of voter suppression laws that will make it harder to vote and easier for outside groups to disrupt polling stations. This is
1: Governor Abbott. It ensures that that Texas provides even more opportunities for people to engage in the voting process than the president's home state of Delaware, as well as many other states across the entire country. The law does, however, make it harder For fraudulent votes votes to be cast, one area that makes it harder to cheat concerns mail-in ballots. In Washington,
0: the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives has passed federal legislation that would roll back many of the worst state-level voter suppression laws spearheaded by Republicans like Abbott. But so far, the Democratic-led Senate has not acted on the measures. Today, New York City's Department of Homeless Services moved houseless men from the Artel Hotel to congregate housing without warning. The men say they are afraid for their health in that setting where 20 people are living in a room. Lawyers say that the city is violating multiple court orders to, quote, absolutely not move people without a 24-hour written notice and the option to appeal the move. And finally, with New York City public schools set to open next Monday, teachers from the movement of rank-and-file educators are concerned that the city and the Department of Education aren't taking adequate precautions to protect students from the spread of COVID-19's Delta variant. This is Queens public school teacher and parent, Amanda Vender.
2: With school opening in less than a week and the COVID virus spreading, especially among school-aged children, we're very concerned. uh, As we send kids back into school Uh, with an airborne virus, we need very strict measures.
0: We'll talk more about the perils and promise of a new school year with Amanda Vender later in the show. When we come back after this short break, we'll talk about 9-11 and the 20-year effort to rebuild at Ground Zero and the many uh, special interests that profited off of that effort.
2: Slippin' up, don't catch you slippin' up. Look what I'm whipping up. This is America. Don't catch you slippin' up. Look how I'm living up. Police be trippin' up. Yeah, this is America. runs in my area. My area. I got the strap.
0: Hey! I gotta carry 'em.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go get the bed. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold, like,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm so dull, like, yeah. This is America by Childish Gambino. Welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. That's I N D Y P E N D N T. Dot org. In our first segment, we will talk about 9-11 and the long rebuild at the World Trade Center site that has been taking place over the past 20 years. In the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks that took place 20 years ago this week, hopes were running high that something profound would emerge at the site where 3,000 people were killed and hundreds more first responders were later poisoned and died of their illnesses. It hasn't quite turned out that way, however, joining us this evening to break down what happened at Ground Zero over the past 20 years and why is Todd Fine. Todd is president of the Washington Street Advocacy Group, which promotes historic preservation and historical memory in lower Manhattan and across New York City. He has an in-depth special feature that will appear in the September edition of The Independent that goes to press in a few days that looks at this history. Todd, thanks for joining us on WBAI Radio.
3: Thanks for having me, John.
0: You bet. It's, uh, it's always great to have you back with us. So let's start from the beginning here. The 9-11 attacks happened 20 years ago uh, this Saturday in uh, Lower Manhattan. And in the aftermath, uh, a, a lot of people were hopeful that something profound would emerge on that on site. Can you start by talking about some of the expectations around what the rebuild could have been?
3: Yeah. when I mean, when we talk about the expectations, it's sometimes, you know, maybe it was a little fantastical. I mean, in some cases, people wanted skyscrapers or buildings to fill a hole they had in their hearts or maybe send a message to the terrorists, I guess, of of how strong America was. So people wanted a lot of different things. But I think people most wanted was something that would represent their values what they what they wanted new york to be what they hoped america would be and so the way it emerged with all of this you know driven by money and private interests and these long delays and fights i think soured some of those ideals
0: right and, and can you talk about a key figure in all this uh, larry silverstein as well as the scale of a uh, uh, federal uh, funding that flowed into Lower Manhattan to potentially make, uh, you know, something really powerful happen down there. Right. Well, the, w- one of
3: the things that drove and sort of inexplicably the entire reconstruction was, was this figure of Larry Silverstein, who only six weeks before the attacks had signed this uh, lease to, uh, to take over the World Trade Center. Uh, he had a lot of debt. It was heavily leveraged in the deal. Um, yet, uh, you would think maybe after such a major attack, people would step back and, you know, the government might decide what, what should we do with it? But he really asserted himself immediately. He claimed that he could get a large insurance payout, uh, that would fund the redevelopment. And he claimed that his lease gave him the ability to re, to rebuild or the, the right to rebuild, which, You know, probably another, a strong governor or mayor might have been able to push back on, but people let him, uh, get away with that. And so a lot of the struggle over the next 10, 20 years comes from these, uh, government agencies, uh, figuring out what they should do in, you know, and how they should deal with this powerful actor who's, who's always demanding various things and also, also, He also often feels, uh, affronted or let down by government agencies that don't meet his timelines or the timing that he needs, he thinks to make money. Now, at the same time that there's this private interest that wants to, uh, assert itself and make a profit at the World Trade Center, there are, there are, after September 11th, there are all these public groups, these civic groups that are established, people who live in local, uh, lower Manhattan, but also across the city who are View that the reconstruction should have civic aims that aren't just about office towers or replacing the same square foot of office space. People talk about uh new transportation linkages, hospitals, affordable housing, uh things that would that would sort of, sort of say that we, we don't just have to think of this, you know, out of this attack, just build office space. We can use this this site and also the federal funds to do something that would benefit all of society, also maybe all classes of people. Not just the rich, and so one of the stories I think of the Reconstruction is how those dreams sort of get whittled down.
0: Yes, and speaking of public agencies, a, a key agency in all of this is the uh, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which oversaw the the construction of the original World Trade Center in the early in the late '60s and early '70s uh, when Nelson Rockefeller was the governor of New York, and of course he and his brother David Rockefeller. Uh, head of uh, Chase Manhattan bank were really sort of the driving force behind the uh, original world trade center. But can you talk about the role of port authority? Um, Obviously they were at the center of the, of the building, the first world trade center, but can you talk about their role in the rebuild of the second world trade center? Sure. Sure. And I think one of the things that makes this space
3: so unique or, or at least confusing to a lot of people is that it's not really city property. Um, It's, it's land that's controlled by the port authority owned by the port authority, which means it doesn't fall under city zoning. It doesn't have to pay property taxes and the mayor and the city council don't really have a lot of say in what exactly happens there. So the port authority um, also was able to take uh, some prerogative in making these decisions, which controlled by the governors of New, New York and New Jersey, of course. So over time, a lot of people wondered, you know, why is the governor or why is this New Jersey have any say over something that was so meaningful uh, to New Yorkers at that time? Now, n- not only was there the Port Authority, but there was also another agency called the LMDC that was established um, right uh, after 9-11, which was a uh, uh, public entity that was controlled half by the state and half by the city in theory, but the chairperson was set by the governor, which meant that the governor actually had authority over that, too. So the governor of the state really had extraordinary authority over the World Trade Center reconstruction in general.
0: Right. In the LMDC, the Lower Manhattan uh, Development Corporation. What what did uh, then Governor George Pataki do? What were his priorities and, and how did that um, drive the process in the in the first decade? Well, Pataki. Uh,
3: had, like many politicians, you know, he had ambitions to maybe be president. And a lot of the whole country was looking at, uh, the World Trade Center. Uh, they were hoping that, you know, there would be progress there, that there would be something people could be proud of. So Pataki kept trying to push uh, things along in his own way, but sometimes it actually made things more difficult. Like he would intervene uh he, he he kind of invented the name the freedom tower for instance in a speech without really running it by anyone or he he made choices about what the master plan would look like he also intervened at one point to to eliminate uh cultural activities that the LMDC had planned uh for the middle of the world trade center site but but in general he he needed the world trade center to be a centerpiece of his of his skill and his talents but it didn't turn out that way even for him
0: and uh can you also talk about the role of uh, families in, in, in this process, especially ones that uh, you know had a, a you know pretty uh, right wing uh, take on on things and and had an agenda they wanted to yeah push
3: well, for? I mean, there now before we think of you know right wing families, there was also first sort of a general family sentiment yeah. that the 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 towers, the locations of the towers. Should be uh, protected, that they shouldn't necessarily build office space on top of the footprint of the towers, which a lot of them considered graveyards in a way. Sure. Um, but there was also this, this kind of period where being a 9-11 family member, uh, offered a lot of political currency. And that, and that was on both sides. There were left wing political family members, right wing political family members. But one of the most interesting episodes, um, in the uh, in the redevelopment that i describe in in the independent piece is how uh the, the there were initial plans to put uh in this cultural building that's in the middle of the memorial uh a a series of cultural institutions like the New York Drawing Center dance companies and a uh a museum that would be dedicated to the history of american freedom called the International Freedom Center a little little unusual but that was the idea but there were some uh kind of uh, right-wing 9-11 family members, especially a woman named Deborah Burlingame, whose brother brother died at the Pentagon, who objected and claimed that these cultural institutions might have left-wing politics or anti-American politics, or as they saw it in their artwork. And she raised a big stir and had protests and Wall Street Journal op-eds and actually forced Pataki to pull the plug. So now that central building is just this, you know, museum, this memorial museum, uh, very expensive and arguably a little bit dark and sinister in its presentation of 9-11, which cost $26 to go into. And a lot of New Yorkers, from what I've always gathered, stay away.
0: Mm. And uh, can you talk about why the, the costs of this uh, project uh, steadily spiraled upward?
3: You know, it's interesting because people... Debate whether this was an extraordinary um, project or not. I mean, you have some numbers that are sort of out of control, like uh, the the PATH station, the Oculus, four point six billion dollars, World Trade Center One, uh, three point nine billion dollars. But it is true that large private public private partnerships, you know, in our history, do often go out of uh, above budget. One reason that it was really expensive was just practical that the Port Authority wasn't just building. You know, buildings, they are actually have this huge subterranean network of tunnels and things that are connected. It's a very complicated site. And they actually made decisions to make the site that way, uh, even before a lot of the decisions about the specific buildings and memorial went forward. Uh, another reason that it, it became so expensive is that, you know, there was a desire to make things just extraordinary, you know, the greatest. So we had to build the, the tallest tower in the Western Hemisphere. They had to build the uh, this grand Oculus train station, and that that pretty much used up all of the money that they were given. Even though they had access to you know tens of billions of dollars uh, in federal support and other things, they couldn't even finish the basic plans for the site, which meant that a lot of these other priorities, uh, social priorities especially, were non starters.
0: Right, and, and can you describe the Oculus a little bit more? I uh, I went by there early this morning, and and it, I hadn't looked at it in a while. It's a pretty extraordinary sight, um, though it, it maybe might have been um, more than we needed to spend on one subway station. But um, can you yeah. talk a little bit more about that structure? Yeah.
3: Well, that's the architect is Santiago Calatrava, Spanish architect who was already well known for building these very elaborate things that would go over budget. The original idea was that it would be sort of a dove. You know, when they announced it uh, to great fanfare, they, they let some doves fly away. They released some doves. Uh, and it originally, the original plan was that the do- the uh, wings of the doves would actually retract. They could open and retract, and on 9-11 especially, they would retract. Mm. Um, but that the engineering for that became so complicated on top of a uh, project that was already way over budget that uh that was that, that that and along with other value engineering sort of scrapped it. It has all this very expensive Italian marble. Now there's still questions of leaks and and whether all of this stuff can be cleaned in the long term. Uh it's it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. It also has this big mall, Westfield Mall in the center of it, which for some people sort of pollutes the idea that this was going to be this, you know, sort of transcendent peaceful space. It's become very commercial in its feel. But uh, that said, a lot of people seem to like taking selfies there, and it's somewhat popular. I don't know how popular it is among New Yorkers, though, versus popular among
0: tourists. Yeah. Can you get into that a little bit more about how popular the World Trade Center site has become for tourists versus how uh, New Yorkers uh, look at it and interact with it? Yeah, I, I think that's
3: one of the most distinguishing features of this World Trade Center. I mean, if you look, if you listen to, I, when I talk to New Yorkers, and that's part of the reason I wanted to write this piece uh, for The Independent, I never really hear people saying, oh, I love going to the World Trade Center, you know, oh, that Oculus Mall, and let's go to the 9-11 Museum. You know, it, it's just not a place that New Yorkers feel comfortable. Now, some of that might be because they have bad memories of 9-11 or it's too traumatic, but I think it's also because it's not a place that feels like New York. Uh, it's it's very controlled. Its architecture is sort of fearful uh, and scary. It doesn't really have a uh, communal sensibility, but what it does have are these attractions. And this is sort of the continuation of New York, I think, as a city of attraction. So we have a Ferris wheel in Times Square. We have, you know, everything, everything seems like it's a gimmick these days and it's attraction for others to make money. So we, we turn one world trade center, for instance, it costs, I think forty thirty two dollars to go to the top. Uh, we have the the nine eleven memorial costs twenty six dollars to get into the museum. The Oculus is a high end mall. Uh, it this it, it doesn't seem like a space that's really for New Yorkers. The average New Yorkers certainly.
0: Mm, and, and it, but it is one of the most popular tourist sites in the city. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, and that's. I think a lot of New Yorkers can't un, a pre understand that fully. Like why. Is there this voyeurism about September 11? Is are people going to the 9/11 museum only because they want to pay respect to the people who died, or is there this weird traumatic, t- touristic impulse, this voyeurism um, that is sort of also reflected in the way our culture? uses 9-11 and and for nationalism and other things and 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 i think there's a need to critique what are we doing there it's almost like we're, we're creating this sort of cultish corporate branding of an event that was traumatic to 9-11 for, for what was traumatic for new yorkers for other people to consume in ways that new yorkers might not even agree with
0: indeed and um uh Kind of going back to what they've created there, uh, can you talk about uh, how the World Trade Center site, say, compares to, like, uh, Hudson Yards or some of these other mega complexes that have been heavily subsidized that have emerged in recent uh, years? Well, I think
3: looking back on it, uh, that's basically the model that they've chosen Uh, is you get one or two developers who, you know, get special preference over a site. Uh, you subsidize them. You say it's for economic development, but, uh, it's not always clear whether the public expenditure, you know, how that compares to the private, uh, gain. Uh, and yeah, in this case, we have Silverstein who is, has two, already has built two towers and he also has seven World Trade Center. So he has three World Trade Center, four World Trade Center, seven World Trade Center. He has rights to two World Trade Center. Uh, he has uh, now the ability to maybe build a luxury residential building at Five World Trade Center in a joint venture with Brookfield, who already has the World Financial Center and other buildings in the vicinity. So by the time this is all said and done, uh, he they may merge with Brookfield to have a mega complex of, of 10, 11, 12 bil- buildings in the vicinity that make the World Trade Center pretty much a Hudson Yards.
0: And, and who utilizes these buildings? Who are the tenants down there that um, are occupying these uh, these buildings?
3: well, that's been that's been one of the struggles is that there's not always a lot of transparency and it's not some people would say, oh, yeah, there was a lot of demand for all this office space, but Oh, you know, in some of these buildings, there are a lot of actually government agencies like the Port Authority and other federal agencies that have a space in these new towers. And that was actually part of the agreement to build them. Um, you have Conde Nast, which is in one World Trade Center, which is kind of the one company that a lot of people point to as a success, but they, they almost left and during uh, the COVID situation and they apparently their rent is even way below the cost of the development. So we're subsidizing in effect to be there. Um, Spotify is in uh, one of the Silverstein Towers, so that's kind of one of their signature tenants. But it's, uh, you know, overall, when you look at it, they're not the biggest tenants. A lot of the bank, a lot of, well, a lot of big kind of Fortune 500 companies still seem like they prefer Midtown. Um, um, I think one of the issues also is that the financial firms don't necessarily want all the trading, big trading floors after, um, after the financial crisis. They are, they are, and a lot of these buildings were built on the assumption of the type of you know, investment bankers, banks, that, that you know, existed and were big before the financial crisis.
0: Right. And, and one other thing that's uh, striking when, when you're down in that area is just down the street from the whole World Trade Center site is uh, Zuccotti Park, where uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, erupted and, and, and took root uh, 10 years ago this month it's a month of a kind of a double anniversary 20 years of 911 and 10 years since occupy um, which is something we're also going to be looking at in this upcoming September edition uh, any any thoughts on that on sort of the, the juxtaposition uh, I mean obviously the 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 vibe around occupy was very different than the vibe you you get when you walk around the um, World Trade Center site but they're so close to each other
3: you know I don't think that's an act uh, accident. I feel like there's something sort of, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a little bit too much, but there's, there's something about this space that seems to kind of be this spiral, uh, where all of the forces of our world come together. And maybe it's because of lower Manhattan itself as the, as the birthplace of New York City, which is the mega city that, uh, you know, inaugurated the global financial center mega city. Um, you have, Obviously, the, the forces of terrorism, you have this Wall Street, you have uh, the World Trade Center as, as this big urban development project. Uh, there's something about Lower Manhattan that I think is a composite of our of the forces uh, that that run our society and that that run our world. And that's part of the reason why I feel like it's so important to scrutinize the uh, redevelopment of the World Trade Center, because it, in a way it provides a microcosm for us to analyze all the forces that run our city or even our country.
0: Right. And um, before we have to go here in a moment, uh, I, I know there's w- a, one more attempt to, to wring uh, some uh, uh, justice or equity out of uh, this uh, mega development project with the uh, world trade center building five and uh, efforts to turn that more toward affordable housing, which you're involved with. Can you describe that uh, before we have to go? Sure. Yeah, so there is there is one lot uh that is up for grabs.
3: It's a southern lot. It used to be the Deutsche Bank building uh that that uh some people may know had a fire in 2007 that killed two firefighters. Uh the Port Authority and the LMDC have uh did an RFP that concluded in February of this year saying that uh Silverstein and Brookfield once again their their former antagonists uh, should have the rights to build an, an 80 story, 900 foot luxury residential tower at this site. And there are a lot of locals, especially locals who have experienced displacement or 9 11 survivors that feel that this needs to be 100% affordable as public land. I mean, that's a principle that a lot of people believe in that public land should be 100% affordable housing, especially if, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any demand for office building right, right now. Um, and so there's a movement uh people can can search for uh tower 5 affordabletower5.com uh, and uh sign a petition and there's efforts to to convince uh the government and actually we have a lot of local uh, political support our congressman Nadler, Carolyn Maloney, uh the uh local uh city council uh nominee Christopher Marte uh Yule New uh Mark Mark Levine Levine a lot of politicians have, have also accepted this principle so uh, you know it would be it would be a symbolic redemption of the world trade center to a degree um we shouldn't say that it would reverse everything all the mistakes but if if we could produce 100% affordable housing there on government land i think that would be a worthy
0: thing to do all right we'll have to leave it there but uh Todd Fine uh, president of the Washington Street advocacy group thank you so much for joining us this evening on 99.5 fm Thank you, John. You bet. And again, uh, Todd's got a a real bang-up special feature uh, that'll be coming out in the September Independent. it will hit the streets at the beginning of next week. We will probably have that article up online in the next couple of days at independent.org. So that's definitely something to look for, whether in print or online, uh, Todd's coverage of what's been happening for the past 20 years down at uh, Ground Zero with the rebuild. So we'll be back after this short break, and we'll talk about the uh, reopening of New York City schools And whether the city and the Department of Education are doing it right, our next guest, uh, Amanda Bender, says there's uh, more that needs to be done.
2: Listen, all you New Yorkers. Unify.
0: An open letter to NYC by the Beastie Boys. You're listening to the WBAI. You're listening to WBAI, and this is the Independent News Hour, uh, the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, uh, now in its uh, 20th year of publishing. Uh, Before we move on, and my name is John Tarleton, and before we move on to our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so this evening to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. This is non-corporate community radio there's no big corporations or billionaires uh, pouring money into this it's members of our our community it's our listeners like you that make all of this programming possible the the non-corporate news and public affairs programming the non-corporate cultural programming you hear on this station WBAI's been broadcasting for more than 60 years and it's been it's possible because of listeners like you so the phone number 212-209-2950. You can also go to give number two WBAI.org. Again, that phone number, 212-209-2950. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as ten dollars per month and help keep WBAI and shows like this on the air. You'll be eligible for all sorts of awesome benefits uh, for being a WBAI buddy. And best of all, you'll know you're helping keep this station on the air and help keep programs like this on the air. And I'll share those numbers again later in the show. So we now turn to our second segment, a New York city public schools uh, um, open for the new school year next Monday. And uh, amid the pandemic, uh, are the schools ready uh, for this uh, to do their work while keeping teachers and students safe? Uh, the movement of rank-and-file educators, the Social Justice Caucus of the UFT, the the big teachers' union here in York, says that there's still much that the city and Department of Education need to do, and they also want their union to fight harder uh, for its members. And uh, earlier today, we uh, posted a uh, an editorial from uh, two members of Moore, uh, Will Johnson and Amanda Vender, called "Students." and teachers at risk of new COVID surge as NYC adopts lax approach to classroom safety where they really break down the concerns they have uh, with how the city's uh, approaching the new school year. And we're fortunate uh, this evening to be joined by the co-author of that piece, Amanda Vender. She's a public school teacher and public school parent in Queens. Amanda, thanks for coming on WBAI Radio.
2: Thank you for having me, John.
0: You bet. So you wanna just uh, dive in and uh, outline some of your main concerns with how uh, the mayor and the school chancellor and the DOE are approaching uh, safety in the schools with, with the pandemic still going on?
2: Right. Well, it's important to note that the CDC says that New York city currently is a high transmission zone. Um, School age children have the highest positivity rate right now in New York city of any age group. Uh, and we're dealing with an airborne disease. So we've learned a lot about this uh, this uh, virus over the last uh, year and a half. And we know that it is transmitted through the air by people being indoors in close proximity with other people who have the virus. Um, so now people are returning from their vacations. Um all students are coming back into the classroom, whereas last year it was only about, it was uh, 60% who who were fully remote last year. Now everyone is coming back. There is no remote option. Uh, we'll be going back indoors in colder temperatures. So it's really a recipe uh, for disaster, we fear. Now, there are some... Uh, there are protocols in place, but they are not enough, we think, to to keep us safe. And so this is the concern. Um, number one would be masking. Fortunately, New York City seems to be ahead of, of other areas of the country with regard to requiring masks in school. So this is good. However, there's still the issue of how will kids eat? Uh, you know, you eat in the cafeteria, you have to take off your mask. Um, so schools are, uh, having to figure that out, um, how to keep kids safe when they can't wear their masks. Uh, then we also have three feet of social distancing, which is the recommendation of the CDC and the principals union has raised the concern that it, for most of our classrooms, that's just not possible because of, uh, space and the sheer number of students yeah, one of the things I was classes. really
0: struck by Go in your article when you mentioned uh, the DOE was okay with as many as 43 students in a classroom. I mean, that's not good uh, for education, but in terms of the public health aspect, uh, that seems uh, really misguided.
2: Right. And that's way over even our own, uh, our own uh, contract, uh, the UFT contract sets class limits um which are of course still too high um but yes uh, uh, um it's and we're it's especially uh frustrating because we actually won quite a lot of money new money in federal and state funds going to our schools so we really should be reducing class size at this point that money that we won uh was from that lawsuit, the Campaign for Fiscal Equity lawsuit um, that parents and advocates have been fighting for for decades now. And we got that money for our schools and yet it is still not being properly allocated to reduce class size.
0: And, and also there is a lot of money that was allocated uh, back in March the, through the uh, President Biden's uh, America, American uh, Relief Plan Uh, billions of dollars that were supposed to go to public schools to help them improve the ventilation in their buildings and and things like that. Uh, Has the New York City school system utilized those funds as far as you can tell?
2: Well, uh, to some degree, uh, yes, there are new air purifiers um, in in our classrooms, although there's certainly... um, been controversy over that and the quality questions about the quality of the air purifiers uh, that were purchased by the city. But the thing about ventilation is that it is not it is something that um, that is you have to have uh, a scientific view on ventilation. It's not something like well that that you can just open the windows and have adequate ventilation. It is, it has to be calculated in a proper way and scientists and industrial hygienists study this and know how to properly ventilate rooms. Um, But unfortunately, the DOE has taken, um, this throwing in uh, air purifiers, yes, it it could help, but it's really a bandaid approach to decades of underfunding infrastructure over half of our classrooms don't have any HVAC system is the problem. We have, our, our buildings aren't equipped. Our buildings are so old. Um, and even, we even have a state law that says that malls, shopping malls in the state must have an HVAC system with MERV 13 or higher filters. That's the the standard for filtration. But our schools don't have that. So it's, uh, it's, it's really frustrating that, um, that uh, it really points to the fact that we need the Green New Deal for public schools. We need massive investment in our school infrastructure. Uh, but in the short term, um, we, we uh, open all the windows we can uh, to try to get that airflow. Yes, put in air purifiers, but it's really not something that I as a parent can feel uh, like in, extreme that, that my child who is not allowed to be vaccinated is going to be safe.
0: Right. You have a child that's under 12 years old.
2: That's right. My, ch- uh, I have a, an 11, a little over 11 year old. So uh, I just keep checking the news. When will kids under 12 be able to be vaccinated? And we're hoping it seems like it might be sometime around Thanksgiving, but this also is, is so frustrating because Uh, all the, this, this vaccine has been, has been tested and, and administered to billions of people. We know that, uh, that's the, the vaccine, the effectiveness of it. And we see the, that hospital beds are filling with children right now. So, um, it's up to the FDA. It's in their hands, but I, there has been a lot of pressure to, to approve the, the vaccine as soon as possible for
0: young children. Right. And, uh, and you have to constantly <laughs> weigh, not only what's happening to your, your 11 year old in, in, in their classroom and in their school, but the possibility, even though that you're, you and your partner are vaccinated, that you can still be an asymptomatic carrier and you could bring the virus back into your household and then get your child sick. And, um,
2: That's right. And that leads to the other point about the safety measure being inadequate is the COVID testing. So the DOE has committed uh, to test uh, um, unvaccinated uh, students this year at a much lower rate than it did last year. Basically half. We're we're, we're lowering our standard for COVID testing, which which is very concerning. In L.A. and Chicago, the school systems there plan to have weekly testing for everyone, whether they're vaccinated or not. And like you say, that even vaccinated people can carry the virus. So that is a concern. Of course, it is much less likely. It's a a less uh, strong dose of the, the virus that you would carry. But it is still a concern, especially as we know the strength of the vaccine wears off. So it, it's really unfortunate that our school system plans to only test 10 percent of students who consent, by the way. It's not even that they have to be tested every other week. And this is much less than the CDC recommendation, which re- recommends one, uh, recommends testing weekly and less testing than we see in Los Angeles and Chicago.
0: Yeah, Let's talk a little bit more about Los Angeles and Chicago. Those are uh, cities and school districts where uh, the teachers unions are a little more militant. Uh, Left wing caucuses have uh, won control of those unions over the past decade. And can you talk about what the unions have been able to do in those two major cities and what's going on with the teachers union here in New York?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, when I look at LA and Chicago, I see just a a vastly different landscape in terms of teacher activism and what, uh, teacher unionists have been able to achieve because of their organizing, their community ties and their militancy. Um, and just for one, the, the unions there were advocating for man vaccine mandates for, uh, for staff. Whereas our union right now in New York City is doing the opposite and instead advocating for um, exemptions, teacher, staff and teacher exemptions to getting the vaccine. Why
0: uh, are they doing that?
2: Uh, I think my sense is that our president, Michael Mulgrew, would like to make all members happy, including those. Uh, from more conservative areas, uh, of the area, um, more consider conservative, uh, regions. And, uh, so he says if you, you know, you should get vaccinated, but if you don't want to <laughs> for medical or religious uh, reasons, then you should have the right to not get vaccinated, which is very concerning because. That sounds
0: like one of those red state governors.
2: Exactly, right. And here we are in progressive, supposedly progressive New York City, and this is how our, what our le- union leader is doing. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, so my union caucus uh, is called More Movement of Rank uh, and File Educators, and we are uh, a fighting caucus, fighting for more just schools. Uh, and many people don't know that the UFT is made up of caucuses like political parties, essentially. So, um, we have the Moore Caucus. There are a few other caucuses, but the main caucus is Unity and Unity has been in control of our union since its beginning. Uh, and so, and it's, it's, uh, very difficult to, um, it's very difficult within the structure of our union to to uh, have our voice heard, and that's really what our union, our caucus is about. What the Moore Caucus is about: democratizing our union and and bring, making our union uh, a participatory organization where we're not just handed down uh, information and told just to sit tight. We're taking care of it. That's that's kind of the message that we get from our current union leadership. We want a seat at the table.
0: Yeah, we have to go in in about 15 seconds, but uh, can you let our listeners know uh, where they can uh, find out more about MORE and and what it's doing to try to uh, beef up the the safety around the school reopening?
2: Sure. Please visit morecaucusnyc.org. That's M-O-R-E caucusnyc.org. And there you can see right on that homepage events that we have. We're open to uh, community members are welcome to to join our events, and uh, and educators and staff are welcome to become members.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Amanda Vender, from the Movement of Rank and File Educators, for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you, John. You bet. All right, we'll be back with more after this short break. When we come back, uh, we'll get the latest update on, uh, on the struggle to preserve East River Park, which is uh, e- entering a, a very difficult phase right now, but the community is uh, still fighting back, and they're going to have a really exciting action in, uh, in the works for this Saturday. So we'll talk about that more after this short break. That was what reason could I give by Ornette Coleman. You're listening to the independent news hour on WBAI radio. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies editor in chief and our final segment. Uh, we have just a few minutes uh, left in today's show. We're going to uh, talk about the latest from East river park, a uh, 48, a 46 acre, uh, gym that runs along the East river and is, a uh, uh, really the only green space for, uh, the lower East side. And, uh, working class uh, community over there and there's been a big battle going on the last several years to preserve the park. Uh, things have reached a point where the city is very close to being able to go forward with its plan to demolish the park and over a number of years rebuild a new park in, in its place. And uh, this evening we're joined uh, by Harriet Hirshhorn from East River Park Action who's going to give us the latest update about that and some big plans they have for later this week. Uh, Harriet, thank you for coming on WBAI Radio.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. So real quickly, can uh, can you sum up where things stand with the city and what you all are planning to do next to try to resist this, uh, this plan to demolish the park?
1: Yeah. Um, the notice to proceed uh, the destruction slash construction was given to IPC contractors, on August 16th, and so that kind of sent us all into a bit of a, well, not exactly a tailspin, but we realized we needed to mobilize pretty quickly a couple of actions, and so we're going to be having um, a battle for the park action, which is a constillatory mappings in light and dark matter at the A. Bronze Art Center from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 9th, but we also have planned something um, for saturday um at 11 a.m in the park meeting at the amphitheater and um that's basically an action where we want a thousand people to stand with a thousand trees um and you know just commit to protecting those trees and commit to protecting that land and and the water attached to it um, so what we're we're trying to do is is use our bodies to oppose the city's destruction of East River Park, which we see as a preventable health hazard and an ecological disaster. And so we want to demand flood protection that does not strip this environmental justice neighborhood of its green space.
0: Right. And and, and can you talk about those uh, thousand trees, many of them uh, more than eighty years old, and and what they mean to the park and the community?
1: Well, the trees themselves—some of them turned 82 on July 27th um, this year—and some of them are quite old and they're and, and quite healthy. Um, the older trees probably have another 50 to 100 years in them. And um, I'm not a scientist, but I know that they they clean the air and they cool cool the air. And the trees also are a barrier because don't forget we're right next to the FDR Drive. Um, the people in the community really do need uh, those and all of the services and resources that
0: they do. Right. And, and also and there's a lot of talk after last, when there was floods last week, you know, with the hurricane Ida and, and the realization that um, the city's not ready for that sort of uh, delusion. There's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, re, uh, remaking infrastructure and, and uh, you know, it feels like there's a tension between like, oh, we need to like fortify everything versus like what are like greener ways we can sort of absorb water. Uh, can you talk about how uh, you all struggle to preserve this park in, instead of having it uh, demolished, uh, fits into that? And, and then we'll have to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important what you're talking about because there are a lot of different reasons why floods happen. And, um, the, it seems like this particular project, the ESCR will mostly, is mostly intended to protect from stored, storm, storm surge. So when the river overflows. And it's pretty clear in New York City that, um, the, the sudden rainfall from excessive rain is probably much more of a threat given our aging infrastructure and sewer systems. So, um, and much more of an immediate threat, I guess, is what I really want to say. Um, and the tree roots, you know, those, those, the tree canopy, if you look up, you can see that, that that's basically a mirror of how the how big and wide the tree roots extend. And so in our case with East River Park, we know that um, for Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy, it seems that. We've got, park, we've got
0: 20 seconds.
1: Okay. The park absorbed 250,000 gallons of water. So it actually did mitigate against Sandy.
0: Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Harriet Hirshhorn from East River Park Action. They're doing a, a big event on Saturday, 1,000 people for 1,000 trees uh, over at the park, and people will be meeting, at, uh, I believe, 11 a.m. at the amphitheater. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and giving us this uh, update this evening here on WBAI Radio.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. All righty, well, that's it, uh, it for today's show. Thanks to our board operator, Reggie Johnson, our producer, Amiga Gagarian. And I'm John Tarleton for The Independent. We'll be back same time next week.